Hello, everybody. Welcome to the final third. Thank you so much for downloading. We have a tremendous episode for you guys today, so just stick around for that. We talk about Manchester United fans storming Old Trafford in a Glazers out protest, Julian Nagelsmann taking over the helm at Bayern Munich, and some more stories across Syria, MLS, the Eredivisie, Championship in the EFL. So much we're talking about. Stick around for that. But before that, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Final Third Show. And one of the best ways you can support the show, actually, is just telling a friend. Tell a friend that you support the show, that you want them to listen to, to learn about soccer as well. And with that, let's get to the show. Hello, welcome back to the final third podcast for our Monday news and predictions show my name is AJ. I'm everybody's favorite Minnesota United, U.S. national team, and West Ham United fan. I'm joined by Jack. Yeah, hello. I'm a Chelsea fan, Minnesota United fan, Atlanta fan, French national team fan, and Slovakian national team fan. I got them all now. Yeah, got yeah. it. I've got it on a post-it note in front of me, so I don't stall <laughs> up again. I think, so we all know that Jack is a fan of a good amount of teams, and I, I think it's really interesting if, if you've been listening for the past couple of weeks, seeing his uh, eventual rise and how confident he is whenever he states the teams <laughs> that he supports. It, it, it's a it was a slow rise at first, kind of had a rocky beginning. But, you know, we're here now. We're here now. Jack, how are you feeling on this on this eve of finals week for us? We, we got finals coming up. How are you feeling? Well, I mean, I don't have any finals for another week. And uh, so Same. my first one's not until the 10th. But, you know, it, it's. A little bit nerve-wracking, but excited excited enough for other reasons. You know, we've got some good games coming up in this weekend, yeah, and uh, in this midweek as well, especially. Uh, so, yeah, I'm, I'm excited. Yeah, I'm I'm excited too. Tenth is is pretty late. You got you got a lot of time on your hands to study for that. Yeah, my, I do. Yeah, <laughs> my first final is coming up this Saturday. But, you know, enough about that. Who cares about school? School's for losers. We're talking about soccer. <laughs> soccer matters more, obviously. If you guys haven't already, check out our Twitter and Instagram at Final Third Show. Tweeting and uh, Instagramming, I suppose, a lot of cool things, you know, because we will also be posting some updates on some possible live streams coming up. We've done a lot of watch-alongs. Recently, we've gotten a lot of cool feedback met a lot of people through that so if you want to watch along with us as we live stream the fa cup or copa italia final or the champions league final or the group stage games and some other important games in the copa america the euro tournaments the gold cup go follow us on twitter for that at final third show but let's just go right into the show in general. We're beginning with the big stories, the five big stories that we have to talk about in the soccer world, both on the field and off the field. And we, have, uh, Jack, the biggest story of the week so far literally happened today at the time of recording on Sunday. And I'm just going to let you introduce it. Yeah, well, uh, if you were following the Premier League or if you just follow it even casually, you might have noticed that one of the games that looked the most exciting of this weekend ended up not happening and got postponed. And, you know, there's a very good reason for that because there was a massive fan protest at Old Trafford, including fans getting into the field itself and onto the pitch. 
And apparently, according to the Greater Manchester Police, there were about a thousand protesters who gathered inside of Old Trafford and were able to get inside. So, you know, why why is this happening, though? Like there's a massive protest. And why exactly would that be happening at a club that has historically been pretty successful in in England? Well, the reason is they're mad at their owners, as they have been since they took over in 2005. The Glazer family purchased Manchester United in 2005. There were protests then, but no one really batted an eye at first. There were some small segments that did, but it finally came to uh, you know, an, an impasse, I suppose you could say, the cold relationship between fans and the ownership. When they tried to join the European Super League last month and it utterly failed, uh, it blew up in their faces. No one was happy about it. And, you know, they really paid the price for it. Now that Edward, Ed Woodward, who was their chairman, resigned from the club, Old Trafford fans and Manchester United fans are smelling maybe a bit of blood in the water. And sensing that there might be a possibility they can force the Glazer family, who they haven't liked for a while now, out of their club. And this is just the latest attempt at this. There have been protests at Old Trafford since the Super League really kicked off. Not really kicked off because it never kicked off officially uh, since it was announced. And they, they're trying to impact this to show their ownership that, you know what, we're not happy with what you've been doing. We're not happy with you putting profit first and all of that. We want our club back, so get out. And, you know, it seems like it could be a pretty powerful message. You know, stopping arguably one of the biggest games that is played in the Premier League, Liverpool versus Manchester United, two massive rivals, is a strong sign that maybe the club will respond a little bit. But, AJ, I want to ask you, how will United respond to this? How will the club ownership respond and Will these protests continue on for a while, or do you think they're going to lose steam pretty quickly? Huh. It's a very interesting question, both of those uh, parts of the question. I think United will respond, obviously, in either two ways. They're either going to go iron fist, like full dictator mode, ban all the supporters that, that broke in. Very likely case. But I guess it's actually not mutually exclusive, the fact that they can try to put out an olive branch, I suppose. I, I think is the, the way you say that and try to rectify any relationships that might have been severed or gone cold. I don't think it's actually going to work because I think fans are very, very adamant about this. And to answer your second question going off that, I think these protests will eventually continue because when you have you have these owners that have repeatedly screwed you over to finally come to a point where you see people taking action, it inspires other people to take action. It began with the Super League protests. It began with the the Glazers out protests of the last couple of years, and it's only grown. And it makes sense when you look at the greater context. I, I know you mentioned uh, their their inability to really invest in the club and not really putting the cl- club first. And it's very true because they've been using the team profits to pay off their own debts and not the actual debts of the club and that's been a huge issue i'm looking at the uh, thread twitter thread from matthew doyle and he puts it great when he, he they said that they've put profits first every single time 
instead of investing in club infrastructure, whether it's actual stadium, because Old Trafford's holding a park, the training facilities, or even, you know, stuff like sports science analytics or smart assistant managerial hires, they, they haven't been doing that. And even as Manchester United goes further and further into debt, they're not doing anything to stop that. So it's only continually hurting the club. I, I think these protests are really putting to light how much needs to change, not just in Manchester United, but football in general. We talked about in the last week's deep dive. Go give it a listen. But Jack, follow-up question for you before we move on to the next topic. Do you think that these protests are a good thing? You can take that whatever you want, but do you think that these changes are going to actually make a change? And do you think that what happened today could be seen as a positive. Yeah, well, I think it's a good thing because it's important that these supporters make their voices heard and say, you know what, you've kind of betrayed what our club stands for and we don't want that. And taking a stand instead of just like, you know, there's so many people who just go on Twitter and tweet like, uh, you know, oh, I hate this owner, but to actually go out and make a stand and say, no, this isn't okay. This isn't what, what we want. That, that's massive. And I think that is where you have the potential to make change because, you know, a tweet isn't hurting Manchester United's pocketbooks that much. Maybe you'll, it, maybe you'll convince like one person to not buy a jersey or whatever, but mm-hmm. more likely than not, the people who see those tweets are already agreeing with them. Yeah. But seeing this now, you're, you're talking about like, you know, reducing match revenue potentially. You're talking about having to cancel TV contracts and like, or not cancel TV contracts, but like reschedule stuff, which takes time and it takes money. And because of that, I, I think that they're hurting these teams financially, potentially, and that can make change. I think it's going to be really interesting to see how United responds, how the fans respond, if they try to increase this more, and ultimately how this affects the Glazers' ownership of United because it's going to be a very rocky road no matter which way you look at it. But let's go on to another big team in Europe having a bit of a shakeup, not to the same level as uh, Manchester United, but instead Bayern Munich. Because as you know, Hansi Flick did actually leave Bayern Munich or he's going to leave at the end of the season. And they have just hired their next manager. That's Julian Nagelsmann from RB Leipzig. He's replacing Hansi Flick next season as the head coach of the German Giants. And there were a lot of rumors about this move happening, but the thing holding it back was the RB Leipzig's board. They don't want to become a feeder club for Bayern as so many other Bundesliga clubs have been and have become. Dortmund obviously lost Marco Goza, Lewandowski, Schalke with Neuer, Stuttgart with Pavard, Kimmich and Gomez, and now Nagelsmann from Leipzig. But despite the board not wanting him to move, it's his dream job. He grew up as a Bayern Munich fan. So now Bayern will be paying a world record fee for a head coach of 20 million euros for his services. And that's an insane fee for a head coach. And he's been given a five-year deal, the longest that any Bayern coach has gotten in a while, signaling their dedication to a new era in Munich. Nagelsmann has a win rate of nearly 60% with RB Leipzig since joining in 2019. He's known for his high-quality man management skills and tactical understanding. Let's see if he can replicate his success at Bayern. Now, you may be asking yourself, so where is Hansi Flick going? What caused all of this? Well, Hansi Flick will join the German national team as their new head coach after the Euro tournament. 
and who's replacing Julie Nagelsmann at RB Leipzig, American head coach Jesse Marsh from RB Salzburg. And I'll talk a little bit more about that in the U.S. Men's National Team corner coming up. But it's interesting to note that this is a continuation of Bayern's dominance and their ability to suck resources out of the smaller teams uh, in Germany, whether that is players or, in this case, a head coach. And that just further reinforces their power over the Bundesliga. So, Jack, this is where I ask you, now that we have a lot of different shakeups in Germany, we have a lot of managers moving everywhere, are Bayern still going to be as dominant as they were the past couple of years? And the bottom line, is Nagelsmann an upgrade to Hansi Flick? Are Bayern still going to be dominant? Probably. I mean, it, it's kind of <laughs> hey, a given at this point. They, that, that's kind of a, a, a softball yeah. pitch, yeah. Yeah, they, they've got some of the best players in the world and definitely some of the best players in the league. Uh, so, yeah, they, they should still be dominant. Uh, is Nagelsmann an upgrade, though? Uh, it'll be interesting to see because he has Bundesliga experience. He's good at navigating through those fixtures. He has good Champions League experience, too. Uh, which is something that even uh, Hansi Flick didn't have when he came in. So it, he could be an upgrade, but I, I think that it's going to be interesting to see how he adapts because as good as uh, as uh, RB Leipzig have been over the past, like, you know, three to four years or so, I'll, I'll say, it's still going to be a step up to go mm-hmm. from that level to Bayern's level, where it's not just enough to, you know, just make it to the last 16 of the Champions League. You gotta you, win it. You're expected to challenge and, and be in with a good shout of winning it every year. Mm-hmm. And so it's going to have some new expectations. I think it could be interesting. I think that he's a good manager. Is he an upgrade, though? I think it's a little too early to tell. Yeah, he's got large shoes to fill, especially with... Definitely. The players really, really enjoyed playing under Hansi Flick, Lewandowski, especially he was saying some of his best games, his best stints were under Hansi Flick the past couple of years that those very, very big shoes to fill. So hopefully Nagelsmann can do that. Or maybe we don't want them to have that to happen and we want them to struggle. So Bundesliga is a little bit more open, but regardless, let's go on to stateside actually, because we're talking about Minnesota United taking on Austin FC, but we're not talking about the actual game. We're talking about Jack because Jack was able to go to the game and I'm going to let him take over the details here. Yeah. Well, we just talked about Bayern Munich who play in the Allianz arena, but I got to go to what I would say is the better Allianz. Yes. Uh, Allianz field <laughs> in St. Paul. I absolutely love it there. It, it you know, it, it's kind of what got me into soccer even more than I already was. It's more into club soccer because if you've been listening before, you you know that I was just a big fan of a national team before, the French national team. And I didn't really pay attention to club soccer all that much until my aunt gave me some tickets to a Minnesota United game in 2019 at Allianz Field. And from there on out, I, was, I absolutely loved club soccer because I saw the passion and Allianz Field was a big part of that. So you can imagine that last year was a real bummer that I couldn't go at all. But then this weekend, I, got, I, I was over visiting some family, and my aunt told me that she had tickets again and asked if I, was, if I wanted to go. And of course, I said absolutely, because it's Allianz Field. You know, the result wasn't exactly what was wanted, <laughs> yeah. what, what I wanted. 
a 1-0 loss for Minnesota United, which I'm sure we'll talk about Minnesota United's slow start to the season eventually. We will. Uh, but, you know, uh, it, w- it was an awesome time because I got to be uh, at the seats that I normally get because my aunt has season tickets through her work. She's She works for one of Minnesota United's sponsors, which is awesome and allows me to have those opportunities. The seats are right next to the Wonder Wall, which if you know anything about that, it's absolutely crazy there and it's awesome. Yeah, I got some follow-up questions. I think a lot of our listeners would be curious about the actual procedure of going into the game because obviously oh, yeah. we still have a coronavirus to to deal with. Right. How socially distanced was everything? How stringent were they on stuff like wearing masks, on you know, I don't know, sanitizing your hands, having to separate uh, different pods of families from each other by like five or six seats? Like, how was that process? Yeah, I mean, it was actually really good because before you even go, so before you can see your tickets on SeatGeek, they have you fill out a little survey saying like, you know, I haven't had any COVID symptoms, any of that kind of thing. They also let you check like, have you had the vaccine? Like, are you fully vaccinated? So mm-hmm. uh, that, that was a great reason, uh, thing too and why I felt so safe going back. Right. Uh, but once I got there, you know, they enforced wearing masks. You had to you had to wear your mask going in. A few people in front of my party, one of them wasn't wearing masks. And they immediately told him, no, you can't go through the metal detector until you put on your mask. So he was like, oh, OK, whatever. So they, <laughs> they really enforced it. Uh, and they even enforced it once you were in the stadium, like unless you were actually like actively eating or drinking water or drinking whatever you had to have your mask on. And they actually had someone in our section, at least, who was like walking around, checking to make sure people were wearing <laughs> oh, their masks, wow. which was actually really cool to see because they're taking it very seriously. And as for distancing, you know, my my group of four, I was going with some family members, was entirely separated. We had a row all to ourselves. Nice. Every Every single family had like their own row. So it was really well uh, socially distanced and yeah, I mean, the only place that wasn't socially distanced was, uh, I, I can't remember exactly, uh, is it the brew hall? I think, I think yeah. that's what, what it's called. Uh, there was, it seemed like socially, social distancing was non-existent over there, but, <laughs> okay. uh, that, but otherwise it, it was very well done. Like I, I felt super safe at the stadium personally. Nice, nice. So, how was the atmosphere? I'm guessing the 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 food was still available. There were still like dining options, but more importantly, how was Wonderwall? I know they reintroduced Thunderwall, their their drum line in there, so they were able yep. to lead the chance. But how was the atmosphere? Were they adding stuff, or was it still a little bit difficult to to get into the games, considering that they you only had like what four thousand people in the game? Yeah, I mean, you could still hear the Wonderwall cheering throughout throughout yeah. the game. Like, I I could hear it. I mean, I was also right next to it. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I I could definitely hear it. The Thunderwall was uh, was playing throughout the entire thing, and the atmosphere overall, like, it definitely isn't comparable to a full Allianz Field, right? Mm-hmm. Because that's just something else. But it was very good considering all of the other factors in the world. And yeah. uh, as far as food goes, I got to get my favorite, uh, my favorite uh, thing from there, which is from uh, the Fry House right behind the Wonder Wall, which is their cheese curds. They're absolutely no. splendid. Like if, if you ever get a chance to go to Allianz Field, go there and get them. They are fantastic. 
I'm getting hungry just thinking about that. Thank you, Jack. I'm really excited to go there and hopefully we can go together hopefully, uh, eventually yeah. in the summer. Like fingers crossed. I'd love to go back, but you know, I'll wait patiently. And from now I'll watch from my TV, just like how I watched the other MLS games on TV as well. Let's get into some, you know, really, really early MLS storylines because we're three games into the season so let's take a look at some really early storylines that are beginning to build up that can potentially grow into even larger storylines as the season progresses. I have six to go through. Number one, FC Cincinnati are still terrible defensively. They've conceded 10 goals in three games, putting them probably on track to break their own record of most goals conceded in a season. They have a high potential attack with Acosta and Brenner, but the big question going forward for them can Stom, their head coach, get their defense stabilized or will he be fired soon? You have to admit that with this really bad start from them, he's going to be on the hot seat come midseason. Number two, all the CONCACAF Champions League teams have started pretty slowly. Philadelphia, Columbus, Portland, Atlanta, and Toronto have all played pretty meh. CCL usually takes a toll on health, but also many times when clubs put a lot of effort into CCL, they end up playing their B teams in the actual league because out of 13 games, those five teams combined for just two wins. The semifinals of the competition won't be until August, so there's going to be a significant break. So can the CCL MLS teams bounce back once the quarterfinals finish? That's going to be a really big story as we move on. Number three, Chicharito is firing after only scoring two goals all last season. Chicharito, former Mexican international, has scored five in two games. He has a game tonight, which is Seattle versus LA Galaxy that we don't know about yet. But overall, he has been playing pretty well. A lot of this is due to the LA Galaxy not playing the best teams that MLS has to offer, but still five and two is pretty impressive. With Vela and Joseph Martinez having a slow start due to injury or coming back from injury, can Chicharito be a contender for the golden boot? He wasn't either of our picks. He wasn't most people's picks, but he could be a sleeper pick. Number four, unexpected success stories. Some teams that have had hot starts given where people thought they'd finish Number one would be New England. People thought they'd be good, but seven points out of nine is really good. Carlos Heal is the real deal, getting one goal and two assists already. San Jose Earthquakes were pretty bad last year with Matias Almeida, but this time they've been leading the West. Jackson Ewell and especially 17-year-old Cade Cowell have taken on the headlines. Cade Cowell has been insane getting three assists and two goals. And finally, RSL. Many people had RSL as bottom feeders, myself and Jack included? Yes, no? Yes. But now they're on a two-game winning streak. Number five, the most unexpected success has to be Austin FC. Austin FC have been really good. Despite being on an away trip until they open up their stadium in June, they've already won two of their last three games, with their only loss being against LAFC. Wolf and his guys are so organized, so composed, and tactically smart. It seems like they're all over the pitch all the time. Alexander Ring, Dominguez, and Thomas Pochettino are three names that you'll be hearing a lot of this year. And honestly, they could be a series playoff contender if form continues. And number six, final one, unexpected failure, Minnesota United FC. MNUFC on the opposite end have lost their opening three games. The worst start in their entire MLS history. Many people had them near the top of the West, but now they've conceded seven goals and only scored once. They have a lot of injuries, but they still have a lot of starters that are playing. There seems to be a little bit of 
disjointedness in the team, no real cohesion. I don't know if it's more coach-based or personnel-based, but there are huge structural issues at play. I will say one thing. I don't like how much we've been pressing. I think a lot of our skill comes from our counterattacks and to see how far our back line is, especially our center backs, not great, I don't think. Come in. The question for Minnesota is how long will the slump last? But the question for Jack is how, what's the biggest surprise of the season so far? And I think I know what you are going to talk about. It's going to be Minnesota. It, it yeah. is Minnesota performing so badly. And I, that just to add also to that, to the last story as well, kind of like I was like on the TV, you, you kind of get an idea of how high up they're pressing, but I was, uh, you know, for most of the first half, you know, our, our, our goal is right near the seats. Like I'm right near the corner flag. And I rarely saw our defenders back there. Like uh, I, I rarely saw them back there. They were almost always on the halfway line or farther up. And, you know, given that we conceded so many goals, high pressing is just not what we're able to do. We're just not able to press high. We have to, and even, even this team isn't suited for counterattacking either. We don't have any of our fastest players, really. Yeah, uh, Matt Nier, and, at least, and that's well, yeah, what that's you about saw. <laughs> yeah, just I mean, yeah, I, I, I saw him, like, running up and down that, uh, up and down by my seats in the second half. One of our better players, arguably. But let's go on to maybe a happier note, and that is Inter Milan winning Serie A. It's been a long time coming at, 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 towards the beginning of the season and midway through. We thought it was going to be either Inter Milan or AC Milan. Inter ran away with it. Jack, what did you see from Italy's Serie A? Yeah, well, you said this was a happy story, but I don't think so because I don't like Inter oh, yeah, Milan sure, at sure. all. Uh, because Atalanta is also very near to Inter and AC Milan. So they are very, very much local rivals. Uh, but, you know, Inter Milan, they, they've just crushed it this season. They, they've only lost twice in, in the league. And they, they've accumulated 82 points. They are currently 13 points ahead of their nearest rivals, which are three teams all tied on 69 points. Nice. Uh, nice. But, you know... They have a massive goal differential too, 45 goal differential. They've scored 74 and only conceded 29. Uh, Atalanta, you know, they've scored more goals, but they've conceded a lot more. And, you know, the the big question is what's been behind Inter Milan's success? Because it, it's kind of it's kind of tough to find exactly what it is, but there's a there's a host of things that it could be. It could be Romelu Lukaku who scored 21 goals so far this season, averaging more than a goal every other game, which is very impressive given that, you know, he always showed signs of like this real goal scoring prowess uh, in, you know, whether, whether it was uh, at Everton or at Manchester United, but we never saw him like really reach this level. And so that, that, that's a big part of it. It could be that, you know, their, their back line has just been, really good for them and uh, hasn't let in a lot of goals like Samir Handanovic, who's getting up there in age has been awesome for them. Stefan de Vridge is, is very good. Milan Skriniar who plays for Slovakia uh, is, has been solid as well. Uh, Bastoni, who's a young defender has gotten a lot of minutes and played very well as well uh, at the same time. And their wingbacks have been incredible. Ashraf Hakimi on the right, and uh, Darmian on the left, 
And maybe it's just the Conte effect. You know, he transformed a Chelsea side who were 10th in the league into a side that won the title the next year around. And they uh, didn't have as much to transform at Inter Milan, maybe, but he turned them into an absolute machine. You know, I've I've said enough of of what I think could be these kinds of factors. There's one other one that I'll, I'll be curious to see if AJ mentions, because AJ, what factor do you think has been the most important in their overwhelming success this season? No, I got it. It's their logo change. Their logo change. Ah, yeah, was, no, yeah, no. Exactly. I, I don't know what, what you're trying to uh, hint at, but in, in my mind, it is uh, Antonio Conte's role in getting the team up and running. I, I think he's really created a monster. He has been able to get teams up and running no matter where he is and to see this side do well is like, pretty interesting. I, I think it makes Italy a lot more exciting especially now that Juventus have kind of fallen off it's been nine years in a row and uh Pirlo and Juventus just cannot get firing right now but Jack what was the one thing that you wanted me to mention I think a big factor that you have to consider is that you know they haven't had to worry about Europe like that's very December. true like uh you know they they got absolutely crushed just getting to focus on the league while you know AC Milan were in the Europa League for a little bit longer and uh uh, Roma are technically still in the Europa League, although not for too much longer after, uh, you know, they were on the hands of a 6-2 drubbing by United. But, you know, I, I think that's a big factor. But like you said, I'm a big fan of Antonio Conte because of what he did for Chelsea. But, yeah, I, I think it's the Conte effect. He has implemented his preferred 3-5-2 system, and he's found the right players for the job. And, yeah, I, th- I think he's... I think it's been fantastic, and he's a big reason for that success. All right, let's move on to some real quick news. Jack, take it away. Yeah, well, uh, this past weekend, if you notice your favorite Premier League club was not posting a ton, that's because there is a social media blackout going on. Uh, From April 30th to May 3rd, these Premier League clubs have agreed to take a break from social media to bring Uh, visibility to the issue of online abuse as it's been very prevalent. Uh, It's been prevalent for a while, but especially prevalent this season, especially racist abuse towards towards Black and Asian players who have received the brunt of it. And it will be interesting to see what the effect of this is. I'll be interested, uh, interested to see if there's any studies maybe done on this effect to see if, you know, did it actually lead to a decline in, in, uh, in these kind of things or did or was this functionally useless it's too early to tell but we'll see how effective it is uh, another real quick story ajax won the dutch eredivisie this weekend going 14 points above second place psv it's their 34th title and a real testament to how dominant and efficient they've been more good news for ajax fans and bad news for some tottenham hotspur fans their head coach, Ten Hag, has signed an extension, keeping him at the club. He was a target for Spurs, and that obviously didn't happen. And finally, in Women's Champions League news, Chelsea beat Bayern Munich 5-3 on aggregate, and Barcelona beat PSG 3-2. Chelsea and Barcelona will meet on May 16th at the Gamla L. Ulevi Ulevi in Sweden. It's Swedish. Give me a break. (laughs) Barcelona have won the Spanish league going 25 wins in 25 games and having a goal difference of plus 122. Chelsea are behind Man City in the Women's Super League by one point with a game in hand. 
if the Chelsea's men's team beat Real Madrid, we can see both the men's and the women's team potentially win their respective Champions League's that's just crazy. Let's go on to another section. This is Jack's lower league lowdown, where he's going to talk about some lower leagues or one in specific, because there's a lot going on. He's talking about the championship. Jack, take it away with the lowdown. You know how you know how this works maybe from last week if you watched, but I'm a big fan of the lower leagues. I think they have some of the most exciting and competitive games in all of European football. Uh, or soccer. So I'm going to cover some of that. I'm going to take a few stories every week. And this time around, I'm going to focus on the championship playoffs and a big game as well. Uh, so the first thing is, of course, mentioning a massive game to watch. Rotherham versus Luton Town, which on paper is definitely not the most exciting matchup. It is 12th place versus 22nd place, but it has massive implications going into the final day of the season. This is Rotherham's game in hand, and a win could propel them ahead of Derby County on goal differential, which would take them out of the relegation zone, which makes the final day all the more meaningful. On the final day, Rotherham will head to Cardiff, and Derby will host fellow strugglers Sheffield Wednesday, which, might I mention, is another massive game as Sheffield Wednesday, with a win over Derby County, and if Rotherham lose to Cardiff, could end up securing safety on the final day. Uh, but let's get on to the main story, which is the playoff race, because the four playoff teams are set. So I thought I'd go through each of these teams and go through you know, who they're likely to play, what their playoff seed is, and then give some predictions, which will definitely be outdated by the end of the playoffs. So first, and the only team that is secured in their spot is Brentford. They have secured the first playoff seed and it, with a third-place finish, regardless of Saturday's results, on at least 84 points. They have the possibility of playing any of the other teams, although the least likely for them to play is Swansea. But the most likely is Barnsley. They're, uh, so I chose to look at their records versus the two teams that they're more likely to play than not, because Swansea, everything would have to go wrong for them and would have to lose by, I think, 12 goals and Barnsley would have to win by at least one then in order for them to have to play Brentford. So, uh, but Brentford's record versus Bournemouth is they won both of their games, 2-1 at home and 1-0 away. And against Barnsley, they won 0-1 away, but lost 0-2 at home. So basically, they, they'd much rather play Bournemouth, although it's very unlikely that that happens. Brentford have won three in a row, so they're going to back themselves with any matchup, especially with the league's top scorer, Ivan Tony banging in 30 goals this season, which is impressive, very impressive. And if Brentford don't end up going up this season, I'm, I think he's going to go to a Prem team. Uh, next, we have Swansea, which they're likely to avoid being the last seed as Barnsley would need to win by 12 goals for them to overtake the Swans on goal differential, but it could either be fourth or fifth. So they probably won't be playing Brentford and are more likely to play Brett or Bournemouth than Barnsley. Sorry, there's a lot of B teams in this uh, that, that I'm trying to keep track of. But their record versus Bournemouth is not very impressive as they drew 0-0 at home and lost 3-0 away. On the other hand, their record versus Barnsley is very good as they won 2-0 at home and won 0-2 away. So they won both, both by two goals. 
So they'd absolutely love to play Barnsley, as they've definitely had their number this season. Although Bournemouth aren't on great form either. I'd say they're much weaker than Brentford, and probably, if I'm being honest, even though Barnsley will probably will have a much harder opponent, more likely than not, I think that this that Swansea is the least likely to get promoted personally. So that that's uh, Swansea's story. But let's move on to a former Premier League team trying to get back in, which is Bournemouth. Their ceiling in this race is second seed, and the floor is fourth. So pretty much maximum fluctuation possible from them. It also means they could really end up playing any of the teams, which makes their fate the most uncertain. They'll want to bounce right back up, but might face some very steep competition. Their record, their record versus Brentford is not great, as they lost both legs 1-2 at home and 1-0 away. Against Swansea, they did very well. They drew 0-0 away and won 3-0 at home. And their record versus Barnsley is a bit of a mixed bag, as they had an impressive 4-0 win away but lost two to three at home just three weeks ago. So they've got a really viable path getting back to the Premier League here. And it's almost certain that they're, that they don't want to play Brentford as Brentford have just had their number and they will rate their chances over Swansea much higher than they would against Barnsley as their defense isn't the most physical in the league and would really struggle to deal with Daryl DK when they last played. So uh, I think that the more, they're likely to play Swansea personally. And I think they'd be very happy if that is the case. And finally, we get to Barnsley, which for now is the favorite of USMNT fans everywhere. Mm-hmm. Personally, though, I don't think they have the greatest of odds of promotion. They Ooh. are, they, I, they are a pretty, they don't have the best players of all in the championship, but they have a solid system and they'll probably rate their chances of making a nice run. Despite all that, all the good stuff, Daryl DK doing really well for them. They had a really disappointing loss to Preston North End last weekend, losing 2-0. And on the final day of the season, they're going to be playing Norwich, who, are, who have won the division, uh, which will be incredibly tough. That being said, their ceiling is fifth and their floor is sixth, so they're going to be the lower seed regardless of the result on Saturday. That means they also have the possibility of playing any team, although it's more likely going to be Brentford or Swansea. Their record versus Brentford, as I said, is a mixed bag. 0-1 loss at home, but 1-0-2 away. Uh, Swansea, they lost both the times 0-2. And against Bournemouth, they lost at home, but won away. So this is a rare case of a team that would probably wish to avoid playing Swansea at all costs. And... Uh, per 538, uh, Barnsley, I think, are rated as the worst team in the playoffs, uh, just one point behind Swansea. So they'd also be – it's kind of ironic, though, because I think that Barnsley would rather play Brentford uh, as their defensive style was really well-suited to neutralize Brentford's counterattacking style. So that's how I see it. I think they're going to want to play Brentford. My final prediction is – that the semifinals are going to be Brentford versus Barnsley in one leg, in one side, and Swansea versus Bournemouth in the other. And then I think the playoff final will probably be Brentford versus Bournemouth. And I think that ultimately Brentford end up getting promoted. Finally in the Premier League, after they really should have made it up last time around, they bottled it completely. I think that, they're, that they have a really good chance of making it up and probably should with all the talent they have. But, you know, I'm sure this is all going to be terribly out of date soon enough. So I'll be covering this again soon enough, once again, for your lower league lowdown. 
Nice. Thank you, Jack, for that. I am definitely going to watch at least the playoffs because I think it's going to be very, very interesting. And I do believe that all of the games are going to be uh, on ESPN Plus for the playoffs. So everyone should definitely watch that, especially if you're a fan of Barnsley and Daryl DK. But speaking of Daryl DK and the U.S. men's national team, let's talk about the U.S. men's national team corner. We talk about all the great things happening for the U.S. men's national team on and off the field, specifically this time around. We're talking about coaching, so it's off the field. As stated before, Jesse Marsh has been hired as head coach of RB Leipzig in the Bundesliga. He was previously of RB Salzburg, which is you know one of the sister lower teams of the Red Bull Leipzig or Rosenball Leipzig, I suppose. He's also been part of New York Red Bulls and Montreal Impact. He's opening the door for American coaches in Europe, and that's the big thing that he's doing. That's not a lot of American coaches in Europe, and he's opening that pipeline. In my mind, it's better unequivocally to have him do well in Europe than it would to have him be the head coach of the U.S. men's national team. If we let him succeed and open doors for others, in the long run, we're going to be happier because that matters more than what he could have done as a manager for the U.S. men's national team. But this has brought up a huge debate on USMNT Twitter. Is Burhalter the man for the job? Should we stick with Burhalter as our head coach or potentially move for another very good coach like Jesse Marsh? And what would it take to fire him? It, it, it brings it to light how Burhalter might not be the person for the job. So let's go over the background. Burhalter, he was with the Columbus crew before he took the job with the U.S. men's national team. Since then, he's had a winning percentage of 68%, leading us to the Gold Cup final where we lost to Mexico and a Nations League semifinal where we'll play this June. There's a lot of criticism for him, however, because he was hired seemingly as a nepotism hire. I won't get into the weeds too much, but that's what it always seemed like. Superior to you on Twitter or uh, at Ein Schwartz, Welt, whatever. He's a huge Burhalter critic, so a lot of these stats are going to be from him. He wasn't an, an exciting hire, to say the least. He had a pretty average MLS coaching career among American coaches. He's seventh in goal difference, and I believe also seventh in winning percentage as well. Many people called 2019 his first full year as U.S. men's national team manager as a disaster. We lost twice to Mexico, one time in a final for the Gold Cup. We lost to Canada for the first time in a very long time and lost a few other friendlies as well. He's been criticized for his tactical malpractice with bad defensive setups and bad individual choices from him. But this is my take. There's a lot of criticism, mostly tactically, mostly team choices, because he brings on some players that might be confusing to some some people. Burhalter hate is largely garbage, and not because he doesn't not have any shortcomings. He does, but it seems mostly fueled not by his merits of a coach, but mainly on his pedigree and his methods of his hiring. Too many times we judge him on 2019. What happened in 2019? Yet people will admit that it's approved. Tactical mistakes, yes, they do happen. He has made them a lot. He has some squad mistakes. But too often people point at specifics. They look at the trees instead of the forest. And the forest that people should be coming you know, to the conclusion of is that our tactics have largely improved after experimentation. Yes, we've lost in friendlies. Yes, we've lost in some games that we should have won. But from the beginning, he stated that he uses friendlies as a way to try new things out. To judge any coach based on friendly results or preseason results is so stupid 
it could be considered mind-blowing. And this isn't to mention his role in building a culture that people want to be a part of, that players want to be a part of. Look at how the players are saying what they're talking about in terms of the togetherness with the squad. They're excited to be a part of the movement. They're excited to be on the team. He's been able to recruit dual nationals like Siabachu, Gino Dest, and Yunus Musa. That was him. And it wasn't just a structural thing in U- uh, as part of USSF, as many people say, because recruitment of this magnitude did not happen until he inspired a cultural shift. That's him. And to, you can't downplay the role that off-the-field work does for especially a national team. Recruitment is a big deal. Culture is a big deal. Because guess what? Tactics don't always matter in the long run when you only have a week to train with players at one given time. He has tactical issues, but guess what? So does every coach. We put his decisions under a microscope way more than literally every other coach because he's the U.S. men's national team coach and we just want him to do well. As of right now, he's not the thing holding back the U.S. men's national team. Think about it this way. You take him out. What changes? Mostly probably his tactics. But can you seriously look me in the eyes and say that the only difference between the U.S. men's national team, Mexico, France, Germany, for that matter, is tactics? It is not the fact that we have an incredibly young team that's not developed yet, or is it not the fact that we don't have the mentality or the practice to compete with them yet? No. It's in-game tactics, and that's it, right? Obviously. We lost the Gold Cup and some friendlies. Yeah, right. Yeah, in 2019. Cool, right? That's the perfect way to evaluate Burhalter now, right? Because coaches and players don't evolve over two years. Growth doesn't exist. They stay stagnant, right? Lionel Messi is the same exact player as he was two years ago. Great, okay? So, so if he doesn't win either the Nations League or the Gold Cup, let's fire him, right? Because if we don't, we want to make sure that we have a good coach. We want to make sure that we have a good tactical understanding. So let's fire him right before World Cup qualifying. Let's make the new head coach come in right away and try to win must-win games while trying to build a system that works. And that is if we can find a new head coach in that time, but who cares? Who even needs a head coach that has a proven track record of creating a positive culture and a dedicated system? Let's just have the team kick around the you know, ball for 90 minutes. Obviously, you know that worked so well with Spain uh, right before the 2018 World Cup. We all know how they made it to the final and won the whole thing. I mean, that'll be great. Because unless you can agree that a little league soccer team can beat Barcelona. You fundamentally have to agree that there's more to coaching than just in-game tactics. And you also have to admit, fundamentally, that Burhalter is more than just tactical mistakes. And if you, if you believe that players and coaches can improve, you have to see the fact that Burhalter has not only improved, but, but has improved this team leaps and bounds. Overall, Berhalter isn't the perfect coach. I don't even want him at first. In fact, if it came down to it, I would dump Berhalter and be Berhalter out as soon as possible. But it's undeniable the improvement he and the team has shown and how his off-the-field work has done to cultivate that. People only look at 2019 and his past. But here's the thing. What happened in the past can only tell us so much, especially the further you go back. Let's look at what's happening now when we evaluate him. And people are excited. Players are excited. We should be excited for him. People put too much weight on games that don't matter. We lost to Canada. We lost to Jamaica. Like, okay. England lost to Iceland in the 2016 Euros and later on went to the semifinals of the 2018 World Cup. We're not England, obviously. 
But that's to say that results two years ago hold no weight if we're looking at massive changes. We can look at it as a larger trend, but when we're looking at Burhalter right now, we have to look at contexts even beyond that. If you want to fire him, you're stupid. You're actually stupid. No offense, you're stupid. There's some good analysis on Burhalter and his shortcomings. Yes, we talked about superior to you. But they have to come with the caveat that he's currently at this moment of time doing a good job under pretty much every single metric. He could do very poorly in the future and get fired, but right now he's good. It doesn't matter if he brings in Sebastian Legette or MLS players if he's winning. So you can't even use that against him. Any significant hate on him is a hyper fixation on specific points instead of looking at a larger context. And that's my main issue with saying that Burhalter should be out, that Marsh should be in. It's just the fact that we have to look at this very logically and in a way that puts the U.S. men's national team's needs first, not just what you think would be very cool, not just like what you think would be good because you play FIFA and that's just how things work. It's way more complicated than that. No offense to anyone that doesn't like Burhalter. I'm not the, the biggest Burhalter fan, but even I have to admit that what he's doing right now is good. That's the U.S. Men's National Team Corner. Check out next week for more in-depth analysis on the U.S. Men's National Team. Let's move right along to last week's predictions. Jack, talk about Real Madrid and Chelsea and the UEFA Champions League. Talk about that game and the scoring system for our prediction game. Yeah, well, as always, the scoring system for uh, our predictions works that if you get the correct winner, you get 10 points. And if you get the exact result correct, you get 20 points, whereas getting none of it right gets you zero. Uh, so let's start off with my team, Chelsea, who faced off against Real Madrid at their training stadium uh, in the UEFA Champions League. So this is a tale of two halves, a fantastic first half and a very boring second half. The first half had excellent chances for both sides, and Chelsea definitely started on the front foot. Timo Werner probably should have scored 11 minutes in and missed a very easy shot that honestly, I'm not that athletic. I probably could have scored it. Not, not, not to be that rude to him, but honestly, I probably could have. However, just three minutes later, a long ball over the top from Rudiger found Pulisic who performed some sublime dribbling to round Madrid snake of a goalkeeper, or, um, sorry, Thibaut Courtois and make it one to zero. However, Real Madrid really grew into the first half, and Chelsea failed to deal with a corner that was taken short initially, bounced across, and bounced into the center. And if you give Benzema a quarter of a chance, even a tenth of a chance, he's going to take it. And he scored a fantastic goal to make it one-to-one. -one. In the second half, Chelsea probably should have had a penalty when Chilwell was shoved over off the ball in the box by Edward Militao, but play was waved on, and it finished 1-1. Neither of us got this right. We predicted either side of this one to zero for AJ. Uh, AJ said one to zero for Real Madrid for zero points. And I said zero to one for Chelsea for zero points. If you combine our scores together, we got it dead on, but yeah, not, not, not no points this, for this game. That's too bad. All right, let's go on to the other Champions League game. It's PSG versus Man City. Uh, PSG started the game really well. The first half was very much in the favor of the French team. Marquinhos' header got them the lead in the 15th minute. However, going into the second half, you'd expect more of the same. But Pep talked some sense into Man City because when they came out, they were hungry. 
Kevin De Bruyne goal in the 64th minute tied it up, but it's a bit of a weird goal. It almost looked like KDB was going for more of a cross, but it managed to bounce a little awkwardly past everyone. And Kaylor Navas was late to react, probably because, I don't know, like his defender was blocking the, the, the shot. He couldn't really get a good view in it, but you know, it was still a weird goal. But another bizarre goal occurred in the 71st minute. Mahrez stepped up to take a free kick, and when he kicked it, it went right through PSG's wall. Like the players in the wall left huge gaps, and it was just terrible defending all around. Nothing Navis could really have done. To make matters worse for PSG, uh, Idrissa Gay got sent off on a nasty tackle on Gundogan. Overall, this entire game was PSG starting very strong and not having Billy to finish off. Just got really sloppy at the end. And I think they're really going to be kicking themselves because it's going to cost them a lot in the return leg when they go to Man City. I mean, they're going to Etihad Stadium, so it's going to be a really uphill battle for them. I guess 2-1 for zero points. And Jack, the reverse, and he got it right. right. He got 1-2 yeah, to two go. for Man City for 20 points. Congratulations, Jack. But, you know, you know, bad start for me. Good start from Jack. Let's see how we did in the CONCACAF Champions League, Columbus Crew versus Monterey, uh, which happened past Wednesday. All seemed lost when Columbus went down nine minutes in the game from a Loba goal. All seemed even more lost when Zelrayon got a yellow card, causing him to miss out uh, from this week's return leg due to yellow card accumulation. In the second half, Pedro Santos was able to tie it up, and Zelorayan gave the crew the lead in the 87th minute. An amazing sight to see, as if it weren't for the fact that mere minutes later, Jose Alvarado scored in a header to tie it 2-2, even between the crew and Monterey. It was terrible marking on that last goal. Huge defensive last from an usually talented Columbus side, and the crew have nobody but themselves to blame for this game. They outpassed, outshot, and outpossessed, and even outcreated Monterey, but couldn't execute. It brings up a trend in MLS as a whole in the CCL. They now have the talent to compete, but can they execute? We will see this week when they go all go down to Mexico to face the league MX sides. But Columbus Crew, thank you for trying your best. Unfortunately, it was not good enough for this game. It ended up being 2-2. I guessed 0-1 in favor of Monterey. You know, very, very close if they could get another goal, but fortunately not the case. Zero points for me. Jack, unbelievably close. Two to one. If it wasn't for that literally 90 plus third minute goal, he would have gotten it. He went two to one for Columbus. Zella Ryan almost saved him. Unfortunate from that. But let's go over back to Europe. Villarreal versus Arsenal. Jack, what is this rivalry called and what happened? Uh, well, we had the first iteration of the Good Evening Derby, exactly. of course, named after Unai Emery and his unique mannerisms and accent there. But this was a really interesting game. And honestly, it was w- one of the games that I was most looking forward to just because I really like Villarreal and uh, a lot of their players. Uh, Arsenal w- were clearly the second best team, though, in this game. Just five minutes in, Villarreal had a great break down the right-hand side as they completely flamed out Granite Xhaka, who's playing as a backup left back, and a Trigueros, who is a central defensive midfielder, fired in with a very smart finish, an overlapping finish, to give the Spanish side an early lead. Then at 30 minutes, Jared Moreno flicked on a corner to the back post, and Albiol, who completely lost Tomas Partey, fired in from close range to make it 2-0. to zero. And 
I, I should, uh, you know, Arsenal had maybe a penalty that should have gone through chalked off for a handball that didn't look much like a handball. It, it wasn't the greatest decision to be honest. It, it uh, but regardless, it went into half into the halftime two to zero for Villarreal and Arsenal started the second half badly. And it got even worse as Danny Ceballos got sent off for an admittedly questionable second yellow. However, it was a late challenge with the studs up. So you can't really do too much about that. Uh, however, Arsenal still got an away goal after Bukayo Saka was fouled in the box and Pepe fired the spot kick past Ruli. The game ended 2-1, to one, but the drama wasn't over as Villarreal's Capu, uh, I didn't pronounce that right, went into a <laughs> bad challenge, got a second yellow, and had to be stretchered off with a massive head injury after being nearly knocked out. And the referee, as he was about to leave the field, flashed him the red card, uh, which... You know, I, I get he needed the second yellow, but it felt <laughs> to to just a casual viewer that would feel like a very, very mean move. But yeah. it was an interesting game to watch. And I think it will be really interesting to see the second leg as both of these teams are going to be missing a central midfielder that was, well, on for one hand, for Arsenal, not very good for them. But for, you know, Villarreal, very good for them. So it will be interesting to see how they adapt. AJ gets zero to one for Arsenal. And I guess one to zero for Villarreal. I backed Gerard Moreno to get the goal, but he didn't. He got an assist instead. But I'll take the 10 points for getting that result right. But finally, you know, if you remember from last week, we predicted Manchester United versus Liverpool. AJ guessed two to zero for Manchester United. And I guess, as is tradition, their annual zero to zero draw. But, you know, this game didn't happen. You know, RIP to this game for for now. It's probably it might happen tomorrow. We don't know, but you know why? Why not just throw it out there? Hashtag Glazers out. That's Hashtag what they want. Glazers out. That's yeah. So right. So right. That, that's that. That's what we want for from that. But AJ, do you want to go over the points? <laughs> uh you're a jerk. Yeah, I got <laughs> zero points. You know, if the Manchester United and Liverpool game could have gone through, maybe I would have gotten ten or twenty. Hey. But Maybe. I I got sh- completely shut out this this uh this round. Jack ended up with thirty. Pretty good pretty good showing from him, especially given that it's only been four games and he's been very very close on the two games he got zero points on. Uh, that brings me to five eleven and one for the the record, and Jack to six and eight and three, which is a pretty respectable record from you. Not so yeah, respectful know, right. for me. How are you feeling especially, about that win, yeah. Jack? You know, it, it's good. It's build, It's building up a cycle, a, a mentality of winning. You know, wow. uh, to to use some buzzwords that uh, coaches like to use uh, in 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 the world of soccer. But yeah, it, it's it's good. Uh, and we'll see if I can continue it this time around. It'll be interesting to see. But uh, you know, I I I'm not I'm not so sure if this is a sustainable cycle. <laughs> Yeah, well, I'll use another buzzword and say that for this next week, I just need to want it more. I, I just need ah, to okay. want the win more. And that's exactly what I'm going to do as we move on to this week's predictions. I'll start off with this first game, Club America versus Portland Timbers in the CONCACAF Champions League. It's happening this Wednesday, I believe. Club America has a game to play against Pumas tonight, so we'll have less rest. Timbers got pounded 4-1 to one this past weekend. Uh, but they're resting uh, some of their players. They're going against talented Dallas side, so meh, whatever. But to go into Estadio Azteca is hard, and I think it's the X factor. I don't think it'll be a Portland win just because how hard it is to play 
in that altitude and that atmosphere. I think America is going to put everything they can on winning this because I don't think that it's even possible for them to win the league at this point, at least the regular season. So I'm going with three, one win for club America. Jack, what do you think? Yeah. I mean, I, I have pretty much similar uh, observations this weekend or sorry today, the day we're filming Sunday is the final day of the Clausura for Liga MX. So this will be club America's last game in the league. So it's not possible for them to win the league. And because of that, they are going to put everything they have against this Portland team, you know, and regardless of if they're rested or not, I think they're going to rest a ton of players this weekend. And if they do, they're going to destroy Portland because their first team is better than Portland's as much as much as MLS fans are going to hate me saying their that, second team might be it, better than Portland's it, first it's team. true. Their club America is one of the best clubs in in like CONCACAF in general. And there's a reason why they're uh, they're in, in the quarterfinal of the CONCACAF Champions League. And I think, I don't think they're going to completely blow Portland out with like a three, one uh, win, but I think that, I think, you know, I think I back Portland to get a goal, but I think I back <laughs> Club America to get one more than them okay. and win it two to one instead right. of three to one. I think Club America and Liga MX might have uh, their playoffs to end the season, but this is definitely like the last regular season game. Right. Uh, let's go on to Borussia Dortmund versus RB Leipzig. Very big implications on top four in the Bundesliga. Uh, Jack, who is winning this matchup? Yeah, well, this is, like you said, a massive matchup for these two sides. RB Leipzig, the title is pretty much gone for them. You know, if they win this, they can keep the pressure on Bayern for another week but it's not really sustainable. They don't really have a chance of winning it, but Dortmund have everything to play for. After having a terrible start to the season and a terrible middle of the season, they finally started to find some form and find themselves only one point behind the Champions League places. So they desperately will want a win this weekend because that would propel them as high as third place, which is exactly what they would like to see. And Dortmund had an impressive showing this uh, this past weekend uh, in the, you know, it was in the DFB Pokal. And yes, it was against second tier op- opposition, but they showed that their players were ready to take on this challenge. That being said, they have some key injuries because he's not always the best defensively, uh, especially not at right back. He's better as a center back. But Dortmund just are on form right now. They've won four in a row in the league and five in a row in all competitions. RV Leipzig, on the other hand, won, have won two out of their last three. And, you know, I think that Dortmund, just like you said earlier, want it more. They, they need this win. RB Leipzig have pretty much given up on the title, I, I think. They're, even if they win this, they would have to have Bayern lose pretty much every other game for the rest of the season, and they have to win every other one for them to do it. So I think I'm going to back Dortmund in this one. I'll say that it's going to be kind of close. I'll say, I'll, I'll say two to one again. You know what? Why not? Two to one for Dortmund. All right. All right. Uh, Dortmund haven't lost to RB Leipzig since 2017. However, Dortmund are fifth in Leipzig are second. There's definitely levels to this. They'll be missing Jude Bellingham to a red card, a sustained last oh, league game. Yeah. yeah. And other players to injury. Leipzig are missing Nkuku and others to injury. So, uh, you know, lot, lots of losses on each side. For me, the real X factor here is the fact that Borussia Dortmund 
just right, at least right now don't have the true mentality to compete if you can get one thing going wrong for them it's going to fall apart we saw it in their games against man city we saw it in their games against bayern munich they can start off hot but the second you take the wind out of their sails they kind of become passive that's why i'm going for a one two rb leipzig win so the reverse of yours i think okay. they might get that first goal holland uh reina sancho whoever it is but once rb leipzig start get start to get the ball rolling it's going to be over for Dortmund. It's going to be over for neutrals who don't watch this next game because this is going to be an amazing game to watch. This is LA Galaxy versus LAFC. This is the LA Derby in MLS. If you're going to watch any game this weekend, other than maybe Portland versus Seattle, this is the game to watch. Uh, Pretty much every single game that they have played, other than maybe a couple last fall, have been classics especially when Zlatan was here and now that we have Vela hopefully back Rossi hopefully back we might be able to see some more magic and Chicharito in form of five goals in two games it's going to be you know pretty interesting to to see but in terms of who's going to win LAFC have been kind of mid they've had one win two draws LA Galaxy I don't even know the record one draw two wins one draw, one no, win. They're, they're two wins and uh, zero losses, zero draws. Wow. Okay, well, that actually backs up my worldview perfectly because I think LA Galaxy have a very good attack, but this is going to be a big test. Their defense is not great, but Chicharito, if he can stay you know, ready, uh, the, the, the likes of Efren Alvarez and the, the uh, Cabral, if they can get really, really going, this is going to be a good match. I think it's going to be a crazy match. I know... It's going to be a zero zero now. I'm going LA Galaxy four, LAFC three. That's oh, right. Geez. Okay. Well, Jack, what do you think? You know, you know what? I've actually gone for a similar scoreline. Uh, I went LA Galaxy three to LAFC two. So, uh, like you said, okay. LAFC, you know, they're not Minnesota levels bad right now, but they're not great. Uh, they drew to the Houston Dynamo, disappointing one one draw, and they drew to Seattle. You know, they, they've shown promise, but they haven't really shown their they haven't really shown up at their best. On the other hand, the LA Galaxy just looked completely transformed. Chicharito is playing incredibly. He's playing arguably like the best he's played in a few years now. After two games, to be fair, and I I know I also overhyped them, but yeah, but, I don't know. Yeah, and this is tough for me to do because I really hate the LA Galaxy. I really do. I don't like them at all. But Come on, I, I, I can't. I, I'm gonna back them this time because I think that's the smart thing to do. I say they win it three to two, and uh, that rhymed, didn't intend to do that, but there we go. <laughs> All right, well, what do you think about Barcelona versus Atletico Madrid? Because this is the biggest game of the entire slate of five games we have, because this could be a huge title decider in La Liga. I'm going to give you the honors first. Who's taking this? Barcelona, Atletico Madrid, or the unlucky draw? Yeah, well, this is going to be really interesting because these teams both really want to win, and they need to win to maintain a title race. You know, Atletico Madrid, if they don't win, uh, well, if they lose, then they're no longer at the top. Barcelona will almost... Kiss the title goodbye. Yeah, Barcelona will be at the top with three games to play. It's pretty much over for them. Uh, Barcelona, of course, really want to win because they want to win the title. However, neither of these teams are playing 
amazingly recently. Like they've, they've had some really good parts, but you know, Barcelona today drew three to two away to Valencia or not drew one, three to two against Valencia, but like conceding two goals against Valencia at like who are in 14th is not great. And Atletico Madrid just barely got past Elche who are the second last team in the table after a 1-0 win this weekend. So neither of these teams are playing well. They also gave up really disappointing uh, losses. Barcelona bottled it against Granada, and Atletico Madrid really messed it up against Athletic Club. So ultimately, who do I think comes out on top? I think Barcelona does. I, I think they do. And the reason why is because Atletico Madrid, they've been good but just not great recently. In Barcelona, you know, they they still have Messi, and that's a big that's uh-huh. a big factor to to consider. And Atletico Madrid are missing Luis Suarez still, who has been out for a while. I, I think the last time he played was in the UCL round of sixteen against Chelsea. So without him on the field, it's going to be tough for Atletico to really find that solid source of goals. And because of that, I'm going to back Barcelona to win this in a relatively conservative one to zero win. Okay. Okay. Barcelona haven't won against Atletico Madrid since 2019. And Barcelona, in my mind, are good, but they can't get it done against really good teams like Real, Atleti in the past, and PSG very recently. And I think that's going to be a huge, huge deal for Barcelona because. They can do well against Hitafe, against Elche, against these smaller clubs. But the second they go against a team that can actually compete against them, they seem to falter. Uh, they've both been bad, so I'm going to go with a one-to-one draw, split the teams, split the points evenly, and really open door for Real Madrid or Sevilla to take the title, perhaps. Real Madrid and Sevilla are playing this uh, this weekend as well, so whoever wins that or draws or whatever, it's going to have huge implications for the title as a whole. Let's move on to Juventus versus AC Milan in Serie A. Big implications, huge, huge implications for the big four, top four race in Serie A. Uh, I have literally nothing to say because I've been mulling over this all day. 2016 was the last time Milan beat Juventus at Allianz Stadium. Juve might be in better form. Uh, whether that's like really sustainable in the long run because they had they've had laid some serious eggs is really you know up to for debate but Cristiano Ronaldo getting a brace this last game really hammers it home that maybe he, he he can carry them to a good win over some local rivals but this is very tough to the point where I almost gave it a draw but I'm gonna go with just the fact that it's been a while since Milan beat Juventus at the at Juventus's home giving Juventus the win one to zero Jack Italy fan uh, uh, hater of Juventus what do you say about this game yeah I I went for the draw actually in this I went for a one one draw Uh, and the reason why is because you know Juventus their only real source of any good this season I, I know you want to say, you'll you'll say Weston McKenney is a source of good for them. I but, won't. He was pretty and, bad this past game, and yeah, and, and he's that, not the main creator. But yeah, yeah. But Cristiano Ronaldo is like their only yeah. solid contributor who can do anything for them. When he's not playing, they're terrible, and when he is playing, they're okay. That that's, that's <laughs> about all he can do. He can take them from being a really mediocre team to being a solid enough team. And AC Milan, on the other hand, 
have a good enough system that can kind of neutralize a lot of those threats. And AC Milan, you know, their last two meetings, they haven't been at the Allianz Stadium, but they've won both of them the, the last two times they competed. I, I think that this is going to end in a draw because, you know, neither of these teams performed like really stunning displays. Uh, you know, Juventus beat Udinese. Cool. They're in 11, whatever. Uh, and Milan also beat Benevento, who are in 18. Like, yay. Uh, they, they, they haven't put together inspiring performances for a while now. And because of that, I think this is going to play out into a draw. I think it'll be Ronaldo and Zlatan who score each of their goals just because why not? But <laughs> I, I ultimately just can't separate these two teams in their level levels of mediocrity right now, I, I guess, which is kind of harsh given Juventus's status, but I think it's true. All right. All right. Well, with that, that is the end of our predictions. So, Jack, how are you feeling about your week's predictions? Uh, do you uh, think you're going to win? Honestly, I took some risks. I took a lot of risks, actually. So it'll be interesting to see if uh, it pays off. But, uh, you know, uh, given given where I'm on a bit of a hot streak right now, I'll back myself. If I go zero points again, I would not be surprised nor necessarily mad because I think at that point I deserve it. So with that, let's end off this episode. Jack, thank you again for co-hosting this episode of the final third. Do you have anything to let our listeners know? Yeah, as always, make sure to check out our Twitter at final third show uh, and Instagram final third show. Again, uh, follow us on there, interact with us, you know, let us know if our opinions are totally off the mark or if they're spot on. Uh, we love interacting with people on there. And also, you know, uh, thanks for all the continued support on our on the podcast because we're we're almost at 850 downloads unless we've wow. already passed that. Uh, but you know, we we've been we've been really appreciative of the support because when we started this, I don't think either of us thought that we would be at this kind of level now like four months in so thank you all for contributing by downloading giving your thoughts all that yeah don't just give your thoughts give your thoughts to a friend that you know because one of the greatest ways you can help the podcast is by telling a friend about the podcast about the things that you learned on the pod and you know getting them involved trying to recommend them recommend us to them recommend us to your dad as well i'm sure he would love to hear this amazing episode and this amazing podcast and with that you know we'll see you guys on thursday for our deep dive episode we'll see you same time same place for next week's news and predictions show see ya bye for now